With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. The conversation continues with Brian McLean and Steve Hook at State of the Nation on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Okay, this is Hour 2 of State of the Nation on TNT Radio with me, Steve Hook, and my man Brian Hesher McLean, live from Central Texas and Coastal New Jersey. By the way, you can always visit visit us at tntradio.live, tntradio.live. And now not only can you hear us, but you can see us. Oh, how exciting. Well, Hesher, first hour in the books. I liked it. It was a good one. Both of those candidates, by the way. If I lived in Virginia, I'd be voting for Eddie. And likewise, if I lived in Colorado, I'd be voting for John. Uh, they seem like straight up guys, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I was very pleased to uh, kind of focus in the first hour there on congressional races. You know, we had Timothy Shea on last week, of course, from MAGA Institute. And, uh, you know, we've we've talked to a number of people that I think will rate really high on their scale of America first politicians and I'm very pleased that we're able to help promote some of those people uh, and make sure that the entire nation knows that these people need our help. And, uh, you know, this is a big election coming up in 2024, Steve. Yeah, you're not kidding. And and it's a perfect segue for the article I wanted to touch on, because you mentioned Timothy, uh, Timothy Shea, our buddy Timothy uh, and MAGA Institute and America First and all that. Well, guess who's not too happy with that thought? Uh, you you will be shocked to hear, Hesher. That globalist rag, The Economist. The Economist says that former President Donald Trump, quote, poses the biggest danger to the world in 2024. That's what The Economist says. Uh, <laughs> and I get this from the article. A shadow looms over the world, declares this November 16th article, adding that, quote, the prospect of a second Trump term fills the world's parliaments and boardrooms with despair. But despair is not a plan. It's time to impose order on anxiety, impose order on anxiety. That sounds a little totalitarian. No. Well, Breitbart. Breitbart weighed in on this, uh, and they said today's voters oppose establishment, wealth-shifting policies on migration, wages, trade, war-making, and the voters might be persuaded to switch their votes in exchange for once-routine campaign promises. However, the article doesn't even mention the primary issue that is powering Trump. That's the Economist article they're talking about, and that is the globalist establishment Uh, establishment's destructive determination to exact human wealth from poor countries via migration into the United States, Europe, and other developed countries. Uh, And it also does not try and explain why a former real estate investor and TV host has become the bigger danger to the world than disease, mass migration, or the elite refusal to look at the diplomatic fix for the war with nuclear-armed Russia. Instead, the hand-wringing writers hide their refusal to make normal concessions by pretending that Trump's campaign uh, campaign pitches are steely-eyed, apocalyptic convinc- uh, convictions, saying, quote, the greatest threat Mr. Trump poses to his own country, having won back power because of his election denial in 2020, he would surely be affirmed in his gut feeling 
that only losers allow themselves to be bound by the norms, customs, and self-sacrifice that make a nation. In pursuing his enemies, Mr. Trump will wage war on any institution that stands in his way, including the courts and the Department of Justice. And it goes on and on and on. It's projection upon projection with a whole bunch of exclamation points and highlighted. And uh, some of this stuff is, 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 you know, is, is italicized to really drive the point home. It is such nonsense. Uh, and as I mentioned, I think the, the operative word here is projection. They are so afraid of Trump and what Trump represents uh, that they just can't help themselves from getting hyperbolic, even in their, in their, you know, very lucid points, which are not lucid at all. Um, what do you think about all of that, Hesh? Yeah, uh, dreaded Breitbart did a pretty good job there <laughs> uh, at analyzing an even more dreaded article from The Economist there. Uh, yeah. A shadow looms over the world. That sounds like the first line out of a uh, Tolkien movie trailer or something like that. Absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and and <laughs> I love this part where it says, uh, a second Trump term fills the world's parliaments and boardrooms with despair. I think that's what Americans are looking for. We're actually looking for parliaments and boardrooms to be filled with despair because what would make them despair the most? Um, the, the, the disability, the inability to do this transfer of wealth, to do globalization in lockstep with NGOs, the UN, the WHO, and all these international bodies uh to WEF. them if if they have yeah, the wef if that's their version of despair if the davos plan being interrupted is their version of despair then yes we would like a hefty heaping cup of despair for them uh and i have my hesitancies about a trump presidency i'm not a uh a full-on maga guy uh but you know <laughs> Anything that bucks back against globalism even a little bit is going to be preferable to most Americans, Steve. Well, I agree with that. And I also think that the line where we, the, the line that it says it's past time to impose order and uh, order on anxiety, impose order. I mean, that's yeah. that is uh, that, that, that you can't get more Stalinistic, uh, dare I say, Hitlerian than that. And And I'm with you as far as Trump goes. My thing is. I don't look at the, the whole personality of the man. I could give a rip about personality. I care about policy. They say, oh, Biden is an amiable old guy. No, he's not. Biden has always been a dirty, backstabbing, very, very mean fella. The media plays it off like he's not. But anybody inside the Beltway knows it. I've been covering this beat for long enough to know that inside the Beltway, the joke has been going around for well over a decade that Joe Biden and his entire family is on the take. We've been seeing that firsthand. And I think the boardrooms and the parliaments around the world love an American president that's on the take because then they've got their finger. They've got him wrapped around their finger and they've got a whole world of crap on him. They don't have that with Trump. And that's what scares them. Absolutely. Yes. This idea of imposing anything on us. We know how they talk about rules based orders and all this stuff. We don't need that. We have america we have a constitution we have a bill of rights we have a system of government that does not need globalist talking points and impositions absolutely hey for all the latest community events rallies marches festivals fundraisers anything happening near uh, near you 
Visit the What's On Events calendar at the TNT Radio website. That's tntradio.live. And stay in touch with everybody on TNT Radio. Abroad or at home, this is your news. By staying silent, we are part of the problem. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right. Well, once again, it's time to bring uh, Ruckus into the party here. Uh, A leaked document uh, from the NSA, the National Security Agency, reveals advocacy advocacy, uh, of divisive racial and gender ideologies. Imagine that with a particular focus on white people who are characterized as oppressive. We're oppressors, uh, Hesher. Here with the story, joining us once again, TNT Radio News producer Adam Clark, a.k.a. uh, Ruckus. Okay, Ruckus, from one oppressor to the next, what's going on, brother? Hey, 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 now, hold on, hold on. We're making too many (laughs) assumptions here, Steve. Um, Well, first of all, I think the big story really should be the fact that there was a document that was leaked from the National Security Agency. Just think about that for a second. But anyway, that's not the story. The story is what what what's in the document. Uh, so let's just ignore that gaping hole right there. Um, uh, so apparently a copy of the NSA's Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Glossary, which was published in May of 2022, was recently obtained by the Daily Wire. The glossary defines 327 quote unquote, social justice terms and explicitly promotes critical race theory and LGBT ideologies. Uh, Critical race theory is also uh, abbreviated CRT, just so uh, we're clear next time I refer to it. Um, It defines, quote, settler colonialism, end quote, as enforcing codes of superiority such as, quote unquote, white supremacy. Examples include, quote, white European occupations of land in what is now the United States, Spain's settlements throughout Latin America, and the apartheid government established by white Europeans in South Africa, end quote. White fragility is defined as a state in which, quote, even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves in white people. These moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear and guilt and behaviors such as argumentation, silence and leaving the stress inducing situation. These behaviors in turn function to reinstate white racial equilibrium. Racial stress results from an interruption to what is racially familiar, end quote. This is what the document says while citing Robin D'Angelo. Miss D'Angelo is the author of the book, quote, quoting the title of the book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Uh, and then also uh, the author of a later edition that is supposedly, allegedly quoting here, Adapted for Young Adults. That's right. Um, the, get that on your, your Christmas shopping list quick. It's going to sell out, I'm sure. Uh, the term, quote, racism, cultural, just racism, uh, is only defined in relation to white people or, quote, unquote, whiteness, which it claims is automatically deemed to be, quote, unquote, better or, quote, unquote, normal than other racially defined groups. Uh, quote, there's a different version of racism here, institutional That one, that form of institutional racism creates, quote, advantages for whites and oppression and disadvantage for people from groups classified as people of color. End quote. One more, just because this one's kind of fun. Micro invalidation. 
Never heard of this one. Uh, apparently, that's the negation of the feelings or thoughts of a quote unquote person of color, as it's explained here. As an example, it says, quote, white individuals often ask Asian Americans where they were born, conveying the message that they are perpetual foreigners in their own land, end quote. So don't you dare ask anybody where they were born. <laughs> Just assume they were born here. See how this works. Uh, but yeah, this is what they're teaching in uh, the NSA. Uh, same kind of stuff we've seen in the uh, Pentagon and other branches of our uh, government through and through, gentlemen. So nothing new. But again, how shocking that this got leaked to the Daily Wire. What do you guys think? I think that it, I think the fact that it was leaked is probably some of the best news out of this entire thing. Obviously, there's people inside the NSA that have a clear enough head to realize this is garbage, pure bunk. And, uh, you know, back in the day, we used to refer to these types of people as, uh, as uh, you know, l white liberal guilt is uh, is what it was and bleeding heart liberals. This is it come full circle. Uh, it's racism as hell. Anyway, you know, you know what I call a racist? Someone that focuses on race and views the entire world through the prism of race. And that describes the progressive movement writ large, as far as I'm concerned these days. They they are what they project on us. It drives me nuts. Yeah, kind of reminds me of yesterday's discussion about how colleges and the media push people into viewing the world through a lens of power and power with regard to race. There's only an oppressor and an oppressed. And if you are a virtuous person, you always back the oppressed, no matter what. Uh, and and this is uh, this is one of the big fallacies of our time. And I would say to the NSA, uh, maybe if you were more concerned about national security than you were about DEI, CRT, and LGBT ideologies. Uh, maybe you wouldn't have documents like this leaking out of your organization. Uh, perhaps yeah. your employees are more concerned about micro -inval invalidation. Perhaps they're more concerned about whiteness and how to speak about whiteness and deal with whiteness in their organization. Uh, and, and citing Robin DiAngelo, white fragility. I mean, this, this is the, one of the uh, Bibles of modern racism. So, uh, yeah, uh, I wonder if the NSA is having a recruiting problem right now with all this stuff happening in the public eye. Yeah, D'Angelo's right up there with Ibrahim X, whatever, Kendi, whatever he is, uh, uh, the yeah. 1619 Project, all of this garbage. It all comes from an ideology that is, uh, that, that, that is beyond immature. It, it's angry. Uh, it's regressive. And uh, th they would like to... Uh, to, to requote the Economist uh, article, they would like to impose uh, their own worldview on everybody else. It's 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 absolutely disgusting. We've seen it. Yes, we're seeing it. The NSA. Thankfully, somebody in the NSA leaked it. Yes, we're seeing it at the Pentagon, DOJ, DOD, and of course, we're seeing it in college campuses uh, around the country. I do think, though, gentlemen, I do think that the pendulum is swinging. I think the backlash has begun in earnest. And I think that the timing couldn't be better because 2024, with luck, fingers crossed, is going to be a watershed moment in, in rejecting this DEI and all of this CRT crap once and for all. God can only help. But, you know, they never sleep and they never stop. They're like rust. They never sleep. <laughs> like rust. Absolutely. Uh, Ruckus, anything further on this before we have to let you go? 
you'll notice that they don't actually define just racism, like the real definition of racism. That's why it's racism, parentheses, cultural, and then also racism, parentheses, institutional. There's no talk of real racism, which is what they're exhibiting right here. Yeah, here, here. just got to zoom out, zoom out a little bit, and you see the wider picture right there. Thanks for that, Ruckus. Perfect piece of context to close with. This is State of the Nation on today's News Talk TNT Radio. You should hear what Ross Cameron is talking about. I see there's a new trend taking place, sweeping uh, the internet of what they're calling sort of technology naked walks, where you go for a walk without your iPhone, without uh, a headset, and just alone. And with your thoughts, apparently some people are finding it quite emotionally taxing, but subsequently liberating. Uh, certainly I find if I get into a motor vehicle with a teenager, it's a matter of seconds uh, before there is a request for uh, usually the latest uh, Taylor Swift song or some other form of electronic stimulus. We are generation apparently trained uh, for a very short concentration span and a desperate need for um, digital company. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me, and I was trying to figure it out, and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old. And it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. All right. One of the most awarded books in fiction is uh, Brit Field and the Lost Crown series. It's transforming literature and education while bringing encouragement to children and families worldwide. It's uh, the first of seven Britfield movies that are in development. The theatrical play came out February of this year, and the global book tours continue through 2025. It's estimated that Britfield will surpass C.S. Lewis and Tolkien series in worldwide sales and impact. Now, that is some pretty big, uh, that's a pretty big claim. But I got to tell you, our next guest, C.R. Stewart, Chad, uh, was kind enough to send me an autographed copy of the book. And Chad, welcome to State of the Nation. I just want to let you know, the book actually is phenomenal. Um, and I thank you for that. That was very kind of you to send it to me. Uh, welcome to State of the Nation. How are you? 
I'm doing well, and thank you so much. That was a great inter- introduction. Well, happy to do it. Um, since we last spoke, how's it been going? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the series? What prompted you to write it, uh, and uh, and 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 what we can look forward to in the Britfield uh, Britfield series going forward? Yeah, I mean, it started uh, originally for Newport Beach, California, and was back east, Wellesley, Massachusetts, for 16 years, and uh, was a British literature, European history major, double major. And then I got on to grad school and then banking. And it was 12 years ago when I was at this boring seminar that I had to go to. I think it was insurance. And that's when I got the idea for Ritfield Lost Crown. And frankly, I was just dying to do something fun and creative. And there's a great quote out there by Beverly Clearly that says, if you ever go into a library or bookstore and you don't find the book or story you're looking for, write it. And so I think that's what I did. And I just tried to write a fun, exciting book, you know, the kind of books that we grew up with, you know, like James and the Giant Peach or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Great Expectations, these great adventures. And I lived off and on in England for about two years. And so, you know, book one, Britfield and Lost Crown starts up in Yorkshire, Northern England, and then it goes to Oxford, Windsor, London and Canterbury. And so it is just a fun, adventurous story about two orphans, Tom and Sarah, 12 years old. And they're chased by the illustrious detective Gowerstone. And so um, since then, as you've already said, it's one of the most awarded books in children's fiction. Um, everything we've done for the last five years, we officially launched in August 2019. So everything we've actually done in the last four years has been a soft launch. Next year, we go global. And uh, we can talk about the movie, the play, and some of the other things we're working on. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, congratulations. This is really taking off. Uh, with regard to the movies, I mean, expectations are so high these days for things like this because of, you know, we've had the Harry Potter series, like just a massive success. Um, yes. You know, yeah. So, I mean, where how, where do you see this, uh, the, the franchise fitting in? How many books and films will there be? Yeah, it'll be seven books, seven films. Uh, we launched book two, Britfield and Rise of the Lion, which takes place in France. Uh, 2021. Last year, we launched book Britfield and the Return of the Prince, which takes place in Italy. And I'm working on book four right now, about 70% done, takes place in Eastern Europe and Russia. Book five will be Asia, book six will be South America, and book seven will be the United States. And so the series will travel around the world, which is which is great. And so I'm about 70% done with book four. Uh, we are transitioning now with the movie into um, pre-production. So We'll be in pre-production early next year. And if all goes well, we'll be filming it in England uh, October of this 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 time next year. So very excited, hoping that the first movie comes out November 2025. I can tell you right now, I anticipate the Britfield Lost Crown movie breaking box office records. I don't think Hollywood will know what, what comes. This is going to be a titanic moment for all the reasons. You know, it's a family-friendly, fast-paced adventure story. Uh, it's based on family, friendship, loyalty, and courage. There's no agenda. There's no magic. There's no, you know, mysticism. There's no occultism. There's no demigods. There's no superheroes. It's based in reality. It's real and kids can connect with it. I think it's going to, it's going to, we're going to rival, it's my opinion, but we're going to rival Star Wars 1977. Um, And it's very similar to Star Wars. It's so funny. It has nothing to do with Star Wars and it has everything to do with Star Wars because it's Star Wars inspired me. I mean, I was, I don't know, 10 year old kid. When it came out, I saw it 13 times at the movie theater. And I just don't think there's anything even close um, to, to to match Britfield and Lost Crown as far as the story. I mean, we always have a trouble trying to find movies out there that would compare to it. And, you know, I kind of come up with like National Treasure with Nicolas Cage because it kind of has that, you know, adventure to it. And and then Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first one, you know, with, with um, Harrison Ford, you know, that kind of 
you know, real adventure, that type of stuff. But again, that was like in the 1930s. And now you have this series that's taking place right now in England. And um, and it's fun. So I just literally, as of this morning, great timing. Here's the movie script. <laughs> oh, and wow. uh, I just finished it. Um, the third draft. We had a, we had a professional um, movie script writer, uh, Rick, uh, been in the industry for 30 years. He wrote, you know, he wrote the first draft. He wrote the second draft. About two months ago, we got the second draft read through it and then i finally transitioned and said you know it's time that i just kind of i get in there myself you know because it's time to like just do what needs to be done it was 168 pages uh which was which was fine we knew it was going to be larger than it needed to be i i literally got it down to uh 148 148 pages so we're right there at a two hour and 15 uh, hour movie that's kind of what we're aiming for and i'm telling you something as i was working on this script and it's funny it's like you know it's my story and i'm outside myself but these scenes are so good the action is so is so real. The, the the heartfelt story of these two kids, the people that helped them along the way, it is so inspiring, encouraging, amazing. It's got the twist of the Britfield mystery and the royal mystery. It's got you know twists and turns and revelations and a huge surprise ending. And it's like, I, I think I think it's going to be over after two hours and fifteen minutes, and and kids will be sitting there just like like can't believe that it's over. Like they'll go and they'll go buy tickets to go see it again. So. Oh, that's good. Let's hope so because that 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 that's where the money comes rolling in when those kids start buying it yeah. again and again and again. And I was just like you, by the way, Chad, when when Star Wars first came out, uh, uh, which is now the fourth edition. But I mean, the first one is yeah. what I always call it. Uh, that, that that was so wonderful, and I saw it so many times in the theaters. I remember me and my buddy Lenny Sadowski ducking down, hiding while they came and cleaned up the popcorn on the floor, and we just <laughs> waited. We just waited for the next showing. But you know, you you mentioned something. Um, you said it's it, it's children's literature, and I'm going to tell you, folks, uh, it is. Uh, kids can certainly appreciate it, but so too can adults. I mean, it's an engaging book. Uh, and, uh, it's an easy read, but it is a, it is a really cool story. And as you mentioned, there's not a lot of spells and magic taking nothing away from JK Rowling. That certainly has its place, but this is a, is a book that, well, I think you mentioned great expectations, very Dickinsonian almost in a way in that it is a story that you can kind of gravitate towards and adults will like it as well as kids audience 55% of our audience are adults and so our youngest readers seven our oldest readers 93 received feedback um, a couple of weeks ago from a woman in, in the Netherlands you know kind of in her 40s or 50s we shipped her book three you know and she's like I just love this series she goes I've never read anything like it she goes I can't wait till you guys are over here um, I just shipped some books to Brazil to Spain uh, we have feedback from moms from parents from teachers from librarians so it really you're right and it's funny because at the end of the day I got to be honest I'm an adult writing adult adult fiction for kids, much like what Lewis did, you know, because that's what Lewis did. He actually wrote Narnia for adults because um, he wanted to write this fun adventure story that that adults would would enjoy reading. And I think that's really what I've done with Britfield Lost Crown. It, it's going back to that wonderment of childhood, right? Just the fun of of being young and kind of having a great meal or a new set of clothing or going to London, you know what I mean? And, and seeing something beautiful or some church or museum or library or, you know, when they crash land in Oxford, and they meet this um, uh, student because they're trying to hide because they're being chased by the police. And his name's Oliver. He's a sophomore. And he's like, you know, come on into the, into the hall. Let me get you guys something to eat. And it's like this amazing, you know, dinner hall. And it's like, these are kids that have like gotten one stale meal 
a day up at Weatherly and suddenly it's like they have a tray of food and they get to sleep in this great room. And it's like, you know, just everything about it is that is that wonderment, that fun, you know, like for us at Christmas time. And the whole thing takes place over December and ending on Christmas. And it's just a beautiful symmetry there. All right. Yeah, I love the sound of that. You know, we need more of that because you look at the way uh, our storytelling and our modern mythology is. I mean, you brought up uh, witches, agendas, occultism, superheroes, you know, things that are not family friendly, complex characters that are not necessarily on uh, like that Joseph Campbell hero's journey that inspired all of us when we when we saw Star Wars and then got older and kind of how did he do that? Oh, he read Joseph Campbell. He studied the hero's journey, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the classics, you know, these things have been patently deleted from our culture at this point. So I'm really pleased to learn about this and to speak with you. If you could hold the line, we got a headline inbound and we'll pick up right here on the other side with today's News Talk TNT Radio. The news. Right here. TNT Radio News. For TNT Radio News, this is James O'Neill. Elon Musk X has filed a lawsuit against Media Matters over its efforts to link ad placements on the platform to neo-Nazi content. A strategy the far-left nonprofit has used in the past to trigger ad boycotts against conservative media companies. A small boat crammed with illegal immigrants capsized off the southern Italian island of Lampedusa on Monday evening, killing a two-year-old girl and leaving at least eight people missing. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda. It never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Steve Hook and I are joined by author Chad Stewart. Go to Britfield.com to learn more, to find your copies of the books and uh, get involved over there. I'm already seeing, I'm already seeing people in our chat boxes saying they're excited to see the movie, Chad. Uh, I see people saying they want to buy the book. So this is, this is great. I'm among that, you know, um, and I wonder, uh, you know, as I was kind of talking about before the the headline there, like, what what do you think about that? The larger uh, lack of any sort of traditional myth, myth mythology for, especially for young people, but for us too. I mean, we're all Star Wars nerds here. Yeah, I mean, it's a consorted effort. It's gotten way worse, and it's interesting too because when I had the idea, you know, twelve years ago, what did I know about writing? children's fiction. Um, now, frankly, I did have my background in script writing since I was 18 years old, was uh, working with a lot of experts in the industry. So I did have, I learned how to write, which is perfect, right? The three act structure, um, the inciting incident, the plot points, midpoint, um, entering late, leaving early, right? And, and, and just sticking with the action. And so learning all of that as a writer was economy of words and how to move a story. Now, when I started Britfield Lost Crown, I wasn't thinking, okay, I'm going to take all my script writing, you know, and transition it into Britfield Lost Crown. But I, subconsciously, I had it because I had it in there for 10 years. I mean, I literally would write all these scripts. And so that's why the book works so well. It moves so quickly. It's great storytelling. It's funny because my favorite scene is, is Windsor Castle. And if you look at the page count, it's dead midpoint. And there's a huge twist, huge revelation. The plot points line up beautifully. 
And it's interesting right now, too, as I um, just finished the script this morning, the third draft. And the third draft is pretty much the working draft. You know, there'll always be a little bit of minutiae, you know what I mean? And changing this and little dialogues. There's never a finished script, but it's it's tight. It's ready to go. So I'm excited. Um, but it's like, oh, my gosh, our plot point in, in the script is like right at 30, 30 pages. Uh, and then we have a, we have a hint or they call it a pinch right at 45. And I'm, I'm like lining up so beautifully. And I wasn't really trying to, per se. I mean, because the story's the story and it's and it's perfect. So, I mean, I was inspired by that. So I remember going into uh, Barnes and Noble. It's like 10 years ago looking you know, just saying, let's see what was out there because I was disconnected from it. Why would I be reading, you know, middle school fiction? And I was, I was quite frankly, I was horrified by what I saw on the shelves. I mean, it was just, it was so blatant, you know, and it's, it's again, the sorcery and the witchcraft and the occultism and it's just, and, and the and Satanism and, and just dark, evil stuff that frankly, kids don't need to be reading. And, um, and it's a saturated market. I mean, it's like 90% of the market, hence, there is a 90% gap for good, clean, family-friendly content that, frankly, the world is starving for. They're not buying this stuff. You know, I, you know, the big corporations, they keep spewing it out and they're pushing their agenda. People aren't buying it. Trust me. You know, people just want good, heartfelt stories, stories that their kids can read and be encouraged and not disconnected from humanity. Right. All these things are doing is disconnecting kids from reality and it's making them not it's making them want to be a superhero when I believe that they're all superheroes. I believe all kids are amazing. They're a gift of God. You know, they're born creative. They're born with talent. They're born with gifts. And all these things are kind of doing is the saying is like, you know, you need, you need witchcraft to be special or to be incredible, or you need to be a demigod or you need transhumanism. And that's the agenda that's behind it. And that's why there's like no competition, frankly. And I don't say this arrogantly. I say this humbly for Britfield and Lost Crown. Because we filled a 90% gap of just great content. Kids are reading this. Parents are reading this. Adults are reading this and learning about geography, art, architecture, history, culture. They're learning about the four C's, creativity, critical thinking, communication, and collaboration. And it's hitting on the main major themes, as I said before, family, friendship, loyalty, and courage. And I must say that as you read the book, and because as I mentioned before, you were kind enough to send me a copy. I, as you read the book, and, and just like any great literature, uh, as you read it, you're painting images in your brain. You're there. You're seeing it. And Britfield and the Lost Crown does that so well uh, that that I, I I'm I I feel like I've already seen the movie, I, having read the book. And I'm like, man, this would make a good movie. I would <laughs> think I would think uh, Chad that when you pitch this. I would think that, well, you tell us, were studios just lining up because the book reads so visually um, that, that, that it, you know, I, 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 it's, an, it's, 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 a, it's a hit no matter what? It just is. And it's like even before you hit the, let's say, million bookmark or the 50 million bookmark or whatever, when you have a great story, which is, which is Hollywood is always in search of or, or everybody's in search of, um, it's how I, I, I ended up with my producer. You know, he's basically been in the industry for 40 years done over 40 successful films, retired, read the book, and has basically come out of retirement because he's like, he's like, he sees it, he gets it. He's like, oh my gosh, this is huge because it's, it, you know, it, 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 it'll hit every demographic. It's not, it, it's not offending anybody per se, because it's really about family and who isn't, doesn't put family first. How's family not the most important thing in the world? And I was doing an interview earlier today and I'm saying, what's so great about the family theme. And that's the main theme throughout it. It's not just who's who you're born to, but it's the type of people that come into your life. 
friends, you know, that would take that would die for you, friends that would, would always be there. Friends often that are strong, you have stronger relationships and a better bond than your, your own birth and blood family. And that's what Driftfield's all about. It's the people they meet, the people that are willing to sacrifice anything to help. I mean, it's just so heartwarming. It's so wonderful. It's basically everything a story should be. And I'll be honest, I'm reading the script because I had to just go through it. I just did a paper edit and I started Friday. So I've, I'd already gone through it two times on the computer laptop. I got it down to about, you know, 20 from... 168 to 148. And then it's the paper edit. Paper edit is king. I must have made about a thousand, I'm not exaggerating, about 800 to a thousand changes during the computer edit. And, and it was like tight. You know, it's like technically one would sit there and say, it's ready. And then I started to print it out. And I've learned just to only print three to five pages. And from the paper edit, I caught a lot of things. I tightened it. I probably added and tweaked about 500 different things. But I'm reading it. And I'm just, even though I know the story inside and out, I'm just so moved by these scenes or these moments or the characters um, or the words or the dialogue. I mean, it's funny. I think Sarah, Tom's friend, has the best lines you know, in, the whole, in the whole movie. She's just got these, these I keep laughing and I'm still laughing. I'll, I'll read something and I'm still laughing out loud. And like, I wrote it, you know, and, I, and I've read that like 20, <laughs> 30 times. But it just it's so perfect. And it's so, you know, it's it's not trying to be anything. It's so real. And that's what's connecting with thousands of, of children literally across the world. And like I said, we get thousands of letters and feedback. I was going to share this one one quick letter. I got four letters from one school. Um, they had to, they had to pick their favorite author and write him a letter. And I thought, oh my gosh, just to even be in that, you know, caveat, wow. you know, and, and to get four kids to that classroom. And and this uh, this one said, uh, you know, he goes, I love the Britfield series. He goes, Britfield and the Return of the Prince is my favorite. And he says. Um, Sometimes because the book was so good, one could forget they're even reading a book. And I thought, wow, you know, like that's a pretty cool comment, right? And it comes yeah, back yes. to what you're saying about, um, and I, 90% of the feedback I've received too from, from um, Britfield Lost Crown is that it reads like a movie. People feel like they're, they're in a movie. And again, I didn't necessarily try to do that. I think that was just from my script writing experience, you know, painting the scene, framing it, moving it along nicely. Not drowning it out in too much description, which I think too many authors do, um, but framing it, letting you fill in some of the pieces, you know. Well, listen, Chad, uh, we wish you the best of luck. Uh, you can find the whole series, Britfield.com, Britfield.com. Uh, Chad Stewart, C.R. Stewart, you'll find on the name, uh, on the on the book cover. And we hope we can get you back here again and much continued success. Have a very happy Thanksgiving. And thanks for joining us on State of the Nation today, Chad. Thank you, Absolute privilege. Thank you. All right. You have a good day. Sounds good, doesn't it, Hesh? You want to read it now, huh? <laughs> oh, I'm, it's already in my cart. I, I got to admit, I was uh, multitasking. It's in my cart. I'm ready to go. All there right. Go. Yes. Yeah, this is great. All right. This is State of the Nation on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Who says legislation isn't a contact sport? We nearly came to blows today in the United States Senate as Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma squared off against Sean Butterbean O'Brien, the general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. O'Brien had been very critical of Mullen on X, 
tweeting, greedy CEO who pretends like he's self-made. Just a clown and a fraud, always has been, always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me, any place, any time, cowboy. Mark Wayne Mullen read that tweet and said, here is a place, now is a time, you wanna go? And Butterbean said, let's go. Cooler heads like Bernie Sanders intervened. They weren't going to come to blows anyway. This wasn't quite the caning of abolitionist Republican Senator Charles Sumner by pro-slavery Democrat Senator Preston Brooks of South Carolina in 1856, but it was good to see a Republican show a little spine, show a little enthusiasm for his position. Now, if we can only get Mark Wayne as focused on election integrity efforts and on budgetary issues as he is on posts on X. For MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Sometimes life can be overwhelming and suicide may seem like the only way to relieve the pain. Beyond Now is an evidence-based app created by Beyond Blue to help you cope when suicidal thoughts start to appear. You can use it to create an easy-to-follow plan that is personal to you and includes steps like know your warning signs so you can act early, make your environment safe by removing harmful items, activities you can do or people you can be with to distract yourself from suicidal thoughts, reminders of things that make you feel strong, some of these steps might be tough to fill out, and that's okay. It can be helpful to make or share your safety plan with a trusted friend, family member, or mental health professional. You might feel like you're alone, but help is available. If you're worried you can't stay safe, use the red telephone icon to call your emergency contacts. Download the free Beyond Now app today to create your personal safety plan. The conversation continues with Brian McLean and Steve Hook at State of the Nation on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, BlackRock garners most of the attention for misusing other people's money to push woke ends, investment houses Vanguard and State Street, the other members of the big three, are in many ways worse. Both of these shops pretend that their support for net zero equity-based discrimination tech industry censorship, and other goals is somehow nonpartisan while refusing even to engage seriously with groups trying to push business away from these left-wing partisan positions. In a commentary published at Real Clear Markets, Free Enterprise Project Director Scott Shepard pulls back the curtain on BlackRock's lesser-known but perhaps more egregious rivals. And joining us now is Scott Shepard to discuss his latest look under the woke hood in woke investment houses. Scott, tell us a little bit about your latest on Vanguard and State Street. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. Um, well, you know, as you said, uh, Black BlackRock tends to get a lot of the attention and a lot of the slings and arrows uh, pointed at it because Larry Fink can't keep his mouth shut because he so desperately, droolingly wants to run our lives that he crawl, uh, calls a lot of attention to himself. But behind Larry, are two other firms that make up this troika of controlling $20 trillion of other people's money, and those are State Street and Vanguard. And what's becoming clearer and clearer is that BlackRock uh, is, to a certain extent, perhaps because it gets the most attention and the most, uh, particularly the most attention from sovereigns, from state attorneys general and from, from state treasurers, it, it seems to be trying to 
at least uh, facially move towards some kind of neutrality. State Street and, and Vanguard, on the other hand, uh, in slightly different ways, are following a, a significantly different course. What they're doing is acting like they're the stupidest people in the world. Now, they might be evil, but they can't be stupid, not at that level. They pretend that when they adopt, called ESG, right, when they adopt uh, exactly the, the, the calendar of the, of the Biden administration's whole of government initiative, equity-based discrimination, which is to say race uh, discrimination, sex discrimination, sex orientation discrimination, just against the other groups than 60 and 80 years ago. Um, and net zero uh, on political schedules that the UN likes, that leftists who want to lock us all in our homes and take our cars away and take our, our uh, 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 natural gas heaters and, and uh, ovens away, uh, they like, but that normal people don't like. So they just we're nonpartisan. It just so happens that everything we think is good for business is hard left lunacy that can't possibly be good. I want I, I, Scott. It's good to see you, Steve Hook. Uh, thank you for joining us. Steve. Uh, I, you know, I, first of all, I must say that Fink, I, perfect name. Mark Levin refers to him as as Larry Rat Fink. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I just find that was a funny aside. But it is it it does seem that after the uh the inbev blunder, the Anheuser-Busch blunder with uh, uh Dylan Mulvaney and the Bud Light thing, they're trying to uh correct course by uh signing a sponsorship with uh with Dana White and the uh, mixed martial arts or UFC. Uh, it, it would seem that some of these companies would kind of start to pick up the clues that maybe this isn't really good for business. So is it that they're just you had the old term "too big to fail." Are they are they just too big to give a damn? Is is that where they're at? Well, I think I I think that honestly, it has a lot to do with whether government actors are paying attention. As I say, most of that, none of them cared at all. And then state attorneys general started pointing out the law to to Larry Fink and the clowns at BlackRock, and and uh, lots of our attention and and, and that of the uh, the honest business press and. You know, threats of shareholder derivative lawsuits, et cetera, BlackRock's really gotten hit. These guys, partly because Vanguard isn't held as a publicly traded company, it's held in the pretense that people who invest with it are partial manager or are partial owners. Um, and with State Street, just because it uh, it's always had a, a reputation for being a little more left, so it is a little less surprising um, that it was out on that ledge. Uh, it just hasn't gotten. Uh, the kind of attention and the kind of pressure and the kind of threats of lawsuits. And so I think if uh, if the attention, our attention and everybody else's gets uh, gets pointed in their direction a little more aggressively and maybe a lot more aggressively and maybe some lawsuits have to have to follow up this this attention, uh, they'll start getting getting right with the world either because they're very big, but the law applies to them the same way that, that it applies to everybody else. Fiduciary duty applies to them the same way it applies to everybody else. And this game that that they're playing, uh, when uh, there are 96 billion organizations from the left that are shareholder activists. On the other side, there's us, uh, the Free Enterprise Project, and we've got allies joining us, um, but but a handful. It's, it's very much the, the David side rather than the Goliath side. Uh, when they pretend that they just can't tell that the lefties are lefties, 
But they can tell that we're partisan on the right for wanting corporations to go back to neutral. Then they're lying at a level that that makes it clear that either you can breach fiduciary duty by being incompetent or or by being uh, malfeasant. One of the two of those has to be true. If they can't figure out that decarbonization and equity-based discrimination are hard left goals. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 pretty in your face. I mean, Scott, what happened to the segments of you know left leaning public and common sense public that we had back in the uh, like Occupy Wall Street days and the Tea Party days? I mean, I'm well aware that. <laughs> Both of those were, uh, you know, like many movements and organizations and political identities in our country have been, you know, completely infiltrated and, and rotting from the toes up and the head down for a long time. But there was a point in our history there for a moment, not all that long ago, where people were saying, hey, what about these 1% people? What are they doing? And it just seems like you could take that mindset, shift it to where we are now in 2023, you know, follow people like your work and realize that there is an identity politic being pushed by one of the biggest financial, three of the biggest financial uh, houses, these big three actually, and they donate to a particular political party. There's so much uh, open information that you would think that spirit of just you know 15 years ago would latch on to how did we get here you know those those left-wing um uh, peaceful protests demonstrations zuccotti park and all those smelly hippies in their in their tents in the middle of the winter in in manhattan those, those aren't real those aren't grassroots they're whistled up and paid for just like when you talk to the people uh uh picketing for the uh for the SEIU or these other these other right unions and talk to them. They're picketing for a fair wage, but they're not members of the union because the members of the union don't want to go out in the cold and they're not getting paid a fair wage. Well, it's the same way with these these crowds. And you can tell because in the summer of 2020, they all of a sudden rose up because some felon. Uh, it was it was tragic that anybody died, but but George Floyd dies and suddenly there are these all all these massive protests that somehow are getting funded. And where's that money coming from? Where did the, the organizing nouse come from? It certainly wasn't the idiots running BLM who were just looking to get some scratch for themselves, right? There, so, so they were whistled up. They, they remained long enough to affect uh, the 2020 election. And then suddenly they disappeared and nobody has any problems and no peaceful protests are required anymore. And so in 2010, that Zuccotti Park uh, um, crowd was whistled up and they they threatened across from Wall Street. And it was all about eat the rich. And the rich decided, no, we don't want to be eaten. We don't want to be this target. If we go left, they'll leave us alone. And so it was the people who, who used these crowds as sock puppets, forcing corporations to go left by threatening them uh, literally where they live. So, so open society would be one that many would mention uh, when it comes to this whistling and astroturfing, and I mean the list goes on from there. Well, the amount of money that George—that's a uh, uh, open society, one of George Soros's groups. The amount of money that man has spent to try to destroy this republic, and I mean I, uh, the, the whole of the Anglosphere. Well, he he started back in '92 when uh, John Major had surprised, uh, a surprise victory for the conservatives in 92, he comes into office within four months. Uh, George Soros had uh, stepped in to break the pound, 
to, to cost uh, British taxpayers billions and millions of dollars and destroy the reputation of that, that new administration in its first couple of months. It didn't do that. There, there are plenty of chances for arbitrage like that with floating fiat currencies. He didn't do it to anybody else. He did it to Britain. And he's not spending this money to, to end policing and, and, and uh, make cities unlivable and teach children to have gender confusion and uh, keep an American border open so that we can't run we can't run the republic and destroy election integrity. He's not doing that worldwide. He's doing it here in the United States. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's so diabolical. It's so despicable. And anyone that has uh, two working neurons should be able to figure out what's going on here. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned something, Scott, and that is, uh, for all intents and purposes, we're, we're looking at, as you, ter- you, you said, they were whistled up crowds. Stalin would have referred to them as useful idiots. But the useful idiots are starting to have a direct effect on marketplace economies and, of course, in our big our big houses here, like you mentioned, BlackRock and the other two. Uh, is there? Are you starting to see any pushback on this uh, from the from the side of people that have a, a, a you know modicum of common damn sense? <laughs> well, I think we're seeing pushback all over the place. I mean, you know, Strive Investments. Uh, was established a, a couple of years back to uh, to eventually get big enough to compete with these these companies. You see, um, uh, you see uh, people moving their assets out of ESG uh, labeled funds, out of ESG vehicles entirely. No longer thinking that you can you can uh, make your energy expensive and unreliable and higher on the basis of surface characteristics rather than metrics and somehow like the underpants gnomes in South Park make a lot of money, right? So everybody's realizing all the way along the line. And the best place you can see it is at Disney. Bob Iger thought he was a genius. And he may go down in history as one of the single worst CEOs there ever has been, right? He's got the Marvels, the last uh, uh, franchise that Disney had left that hadn't been destroyed. Right now, you can just see from the box office, they've destroyed it. And uh, and so they're having to pull back, having to retrench. Uh, Disney Plus is over, and so I think that that uh, reality is being forced forced into the uh, the vision paths of these uh, these idiots who who I hope will be tossed onto the uh, the ash heap of history fairly soon. Yeah, we do too. <clears throat> we absolutely do too. And that that leads back to what you said about fiduciary duty you can't just crap all over your entire boardroom and all your investors and and claim to be one of the top houses in the world in the nation you can't do that and you can't be this stupid after what we just see this getting woke going broke over and over and over again i mean you mentioned south park the newest one the panderverse they really go after them hard on this one, not to sidetrack us at all, but I'm, I mention it because it's now culturally normal to point out that, hey, this is going on. These investment companies are doing culture jamming and it's costing people money and it's affecting people negatively in the society. So uh, yeah, Scott, um, I highly recommend that you go out and you follow Scott over there at nationalcenter.org. Scott Shepard, always a pleasure to have you. Uh, your final thoughts in 30 seconds or less. Well, uh, my, my final thoughts uh, this week are just uh, have a happy Thanksgiving. If you've got some lefties in the room who want to lecture you at Thanksgiving, lecture them right back. Or better yet, 
kick him out back, let him uh, stand outside in the snow for a while and and cool down <laughs> while you drink up. And then when you're loaded, let him back in. But but they uh, they take it at their own risk. All right, good plan. <laughs> good plan. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. That's all right, right. Anytime, and happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy, happy Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, Scott. Stay tuned for Misty Winston. This is State of the Nation on today's News Talk TNT Radio.